0: focus on truth and justice. Truth and justice. This is continuing the, um, the fruitfulness on the front line series that we've been going through and, and hopefully you've, you've, you've been finding it helpful. Um, I've found it helpful as I've, as I've been going through the series. Um, just having this, um, this, this explanation of, of how we can make our faith relevant and applicable and helpful in our everyday lives on our front line. Now, very sad news this week. Um, England's tour of Sri Lanka was cancelled, and chances are the start of the county cricket season will also be delayed. I know, I know, I, I feel it too. As I was preparing for today, truth and justice. There's a phrase, isn't there? When when someone does something which isn't quite isn't quite right, it's a bit it's a bit unfair. It leaves a bit of a bitter taste. You'll often hear someone say. It's just not cricket. Now, that came from the idea of walking. Traditionally, when a batsman is standing there and a ball ball is bowled to him, a batsman plays a shot and, say, for instance, he, he gets the faintest of edges. It just brushes the edge of his back and a wicketkeeper catches it. That batsman is out. But before the days of um, of Hawkeye and um, uh, all the different technologies that you have now, which can sense the slightest vibration and show the, the faintest heat spot on the back, before that existed, it was down to the umpire standing 22 yards away to be able to hear that faintest of sounds. That's not easy, especially when you're in a stadium with a few thousand people watching. Even if you've got one man and his dog watching, it's still difficult to pick it up. And so, traditionally, in cricket, if a batsman felt the ball, if he felt the, the slight vibration, a slight tremor go through the bat, he knew that he was out. Traditionally, he wouldn't wait for the umpire to, to raise a finger and make the decision. He would, he would do the right thing and he would tuck his bat under his arm and walk. Walk back to the pavilion because he's out. Now, you see, that's a demonstration of truth. Because anybody else on that cricket pitch can know, uh, can, can be absolutely oblivious to the fact that the batsman has, has made contact with the ball. It's that one individual who, on the spot, has to make the decision, I could get away with this, but the right thing to do, the truthful thing to do, is to walk, because I'm out. You sometimes see a flip side of that on the cricket pitch. Um, A few years ago there was a a match where a batsman had hit the ball and was running to get to the other end and one of the fielders was waiting for the ball to be thrown to him and stepped onto the pitch and got in the way of the batsman running, running so the batsman couldn't actually get to the other end and the fielder hit the stumps and he was given out. But the captain of the fielding team, after a bit of thinking, said to the umpire, can you reinstate that batsman please? Because that wasn't fair. He was obstructed. He would have made his ground. He would have got back to his crease. Um, but he was obstructed and that's not, that's not right. It was an accident. Can you please reinstate him? That's an example of justice. That's an example of, of justice where um, the umpire is given a decision, black and white, by the laws of the game, that batsman is out. And the umpire's umpires ratified that, he's he's out, and the batsman's walked off the pitch. But the captain says, no, this is not the spirit of the game. Yes, it's going to help my team win, but actually, the greater good, justice needs to be done. And the just decision is to call him back, because it wasn't right, it wasn't fair. Now, the Australians famously don't, um, and not all of them, but they famously don't agree with walking. They say the umpire is the one to make the decision. And so I will accept the umpire's decision. Sometimes he'll give me out when I know I've full well I haven't hit it. I've got to accept that. In the same way, if I know I've hit it but he doesn't hear it, that's his problem. I'm not walking. And so it's easy to blame the Australians. They're a long way away. But the, sort of the, the breakdown in the traditional values of the game sort of came about from, from that, from people saying, it's just not cricket. You can't do that. It's not cricket. Now, I... I know I, you know I do tend to use cricketing analogies, but I think here it works. I think here it works. Because this is a game which relies on honour and those values of respect and decency, of telling truth and acting justly. But unfortunately, just like in so many other areas of life, those values are rapidly diminishing in a game of cricket. You see people being tempted by gambling syndicates to to throw a match. You see players taking any opportunity to cheat, whether it's rubbing dust on the ball like the England captain did in the 1990s to to change the behaviour of it, or whether it's an Australian using sandpaper again to to change the condition of the ball. Cheating and deceiving are stepping in. Across the world, there is an undeniable need for truth and justice. Away from cricket, we see that as soon as truth and justice are watered down, are lost, people become blind to their responsibilities. We see it in the parent on the touchline of a children's football match, ranting at the referee, sometimes using foul and abusive language, when there's a group of kids on the pitch playing football. We see it in our casual acceptance of a plumber saying, well, it's going to be 400 quid, but I'll do it 300 for cash. And we think, oh, happy days, that'd be great, thanks. But it's not right. We see it in, 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 the, in the corporate world. We see it in the falsification of CVs. I've got to hold my hand up here. When I left school and I went to university and I was looking for a job after that, um, on, my, on my CV, basically, I've done two jobs up to that point. I've been a paper boy and I've been a milk boy. According to my CV, I've been a distributions officer to the media industry. And I've been an assistant part-time dairy produce distributions officer. <laughs> but you see, it's not right, is it? It's not being straight. It's not being completely honest. It's dressing something up to be what it's not. It's, it's blurring the boundaries of truth and of justice. Elsewhere, you might, you might take a phone call. I know I've done this many times where someone rings up and I'm just about to leave the office, I'm talking in my previous role here, not since I've, not since I've gone into ministry, but if I, took a, if I was going out for lunch on Friday and I knew chances are I was going out with a client or an underwriter and I probably wouldn't be back to the office and it was, it was 12 o'clock and I was, just, I was just packing up and the phone rang. I'd always answer it and if someone said, oh, is Tom Madders there? I'd think, well, you, you clearly don't know me, so this is going to be a new inquiry and... Frankly, that takes time, and I've got a lunch appointment, so I'd say, Oh, I'm sorry, he's on the phone at the moment. And they'd say, Oh, okay, I'll ring back. Oh, thanks. Now, I wasn't lying, I was actually on the phone. (laughs) And that's how I justify it. But it's not right, is it? It's blurring the boundaries. And as soon as we start blurring the boundaries, you know, I'm really sorry, I never got the email. It's so easy, isn't it? These things slip off the tongue. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one. That, that doesn't allow us to blur boundaries. That puts into stark contrast these these massaging of truth and justice to to make it malleable and suit our own purposes, make things convenient for us. To allow our conscience to, to accept certain irregularities on the truth and justice front. But you see, we've got to guard against it. Why? Quite simply, you won't be surprised to hear this, God hates lies. He absolutely hates lies. In Nahum chapter 3, it opens saying, "'Woe to the city of blood, full of lies!' full of plunder, never without victims. Lies are, are never without victims. The victim is the person who, is, who believes the lie, the person who is seduced by it, the person who rings up the, uh, the insurance broker on a Friday lunchtime and says, I desperately need cover for my business and, and the insurance broker says, <laughs> pulls a fast one and puts the phone down and walks off to lunch. It's not true. And there's a victim. The kids on the football pitch are the victims of the, the outburst of the angry parent who says, That wasn't offside, you're blind, Rick! And then carries on with his more colourful language. The victims are the ones listening to it. And it's not right. God hates lies. And we know that God loves truth. Truth is music to the ears of God. When we are truthful, it pleases God. Psalm 15 begins by saying, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? In other words, how, how, can we, how can we qualify? What do we need to do? Now, of course, Jesus is the only way. But what can we do to, to make ourselves palatable, to please God in the lives that we live? Who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And the answer comes back. He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man? All of these are to do with, with the way that we present ourselves, that the, the way that we, we deal with truth and with justice, being transparent as individuals, that pleases God. That pleases God. God hates the exploitation of the poor. Injustice. Amos chapter 2 verse 6, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. It's so easy, isn't it, to stand by and watch someone being oppressed. Well, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes, but I'm keeping out of it. But it doesn't please God. God hates seeing seeing the exploitation of the poor, people being taken advantage of, because they haven't got the resources to, to fight their own corner, to hold their own. We have a duty to stand with people, we have a duty to ensure that justice is observed, is done, justice is, is acted upon. Later on in the book of Amos, the prophet says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing never stream. If only we could do that. We all at some point in our lives turn a blind eye to truth and justice but we're told to let justice roll on like a river let righteousness flow like a never failing stream sounds easy doesn't it it should be easy and yet actually it's incredibly difficult it's really difficult to to stand up and say that's not true that's not just that's not fair That's not right. We so often feel powerless because miscarriages of justice are carried out by by whole countries sometimes, by governments, by corporations, by councils. Sometimes when it's individual against individual, it's, it's quite straightforward. But we can look and say, well, there's clearly an injustice here, but what can we do? Well, the Bible is full of examples of what God can do. You see, we look at Elijah. He had to spend three years in hiding for trying to fall through peace, uh, truth and justice. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. But God ensured that eventually Elijah triumphed. Eventually, truth and justice were brought about. In 1 Kings 22, we see Micaiah, he ends up in prison on a diet of bread and water for telling the truth. Jeremiah, of course, he was ostracised, he was mocked, he was, he was beaten to within an inch of his life. He was thrown half dead in a, in a, in a well, For telling God's truth, of course, in Acts chapter six and seven, we read about Stephen for preaching the truth, for preaching the good news of Jesus. He's then stoned to death because people didn't want to hear it. Make no mistake, truth and justice are not easy to administer. It's um, it's often the case that when when whistleblowers make a noise in the company they're working for, they don't stay there very long. I had, a, I had an instance when I was up in the city where um, one of the clients I dealt with said, we, we, we have a, we've had a bad year, we're struggling, we need, we need to save money on all fronts, so look, I need to, we need to cut the, cut the um, portfolio of covers that we've got, the insurances, um, we need to cut them right back to the bare bones. I know it's not good for the company, but we simply, we, we are struggling. And um, so I got in various quotes and they were all in the same sort of ballpark and then I thought, well, I know there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a new market that has started underwriting this business and they, they're, making, they're making noises about being able to do things that others can't. So I went and spoke to them and I, I presented the case to them and they came back and they were making a huge saving. My boss had been on holiday when he came back, I went through it with him and I said, look, this is a great result. This is uh, it's, it's what, the, it's what the client's asked for and we, we've saved them. Look how much we've saved them. And he said, absolutely not. We're not doing that. Now, that's illegal. I was told to delete, delete evidence of these competitive terms. Now, to be fair, he said, he said, we don't know anything about these people. They might not be able to do it next year. Fair enough. Fair enough. But right there and then, I was in a position where I said, this is wrong. This is, we've been asked to do this. We'll, we'll, next year, we'll see what next year brings. We can tell the client there's a risk that this is just going to be a one-off. And he said, look, if you don't want to do your job, there's plenty of other people who will. Within six months, I've given him my notice in response to feeling a call to ministry that was when the alarm bells rang and I thought, oh, I've never felt like this before. This is, this is wrong. This is not right. And very quickly I found myself pursuing another option, another, another path. And there are other whistleblowers as well that we, that we read about from time to time. They don't last long in the companies because people don't like having their own mistakes, their own faults, their own um, lacking of truth and justice pointed out. The truth is inconvenient but it was inconvenient for, for so many biblical prophets as well. Pursuing truth and justice doesn't leave you in a bed of roses. But of course it's not always the massive challenges it's not always the great big headlines and, and we can sometimes get, make this mistake of, of focusing on, on the big headline cases but actually a bit of juicy gossip being passed around. We shouldn't take part. We shouldn't join in. We're told that gossip doesn't please God. Going back, to, going back to the psalm. It says, He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. When we get a bit of juicy gossip, it's very tempting to pass it round. But actually, it should stop with us. We, we, can, we can stop it. All right, it might be shared by other people, but we can be the ones who say, Well, I'm not passing that on because I, wouldn't, I don't want to know it, but I do know it. But it stops here. I'm not sharing it. We should be the people who, our, the people on our front line, come to recognise that when they tell us something, it doesn't get shared. I've had, I've had friends of mine who have been around for dinner and they've made reference to a problem they've had in the past and Joe sat there and said, what are you talking about? Because I haven't shared it with her, because I haven't had permission to share it. And so, she's suddenly then, it's, I've sort of said, oh sorry, I, I didn't tell her. But you didn't tell your own wife. No, you didn't give her permission to. I didn't, she didn't need to know. And that's a good thing. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing for husbands and wives to keep secrets from each other, but we should respect what people tell us. We shouldn't share it and pass it on unless we've got permission to. People on our front line see that and they'll suddenly realise that they can trust us. They can be truthful with us. They can be honest with us. Sometimes we might see a colleague not standing up for themselves or a friend being, being bullied Sometimes it can seem like a very minor minor thing, but we can stand up for people, don't speak to them like that. don't treat them like that. don't dismiss their view as casually as you have. Show some respect, show some love. A few years ago we um we went to a friend's child's birthday party, and it was an eighteenth and um, they the house we were at, there's a swimming pool in the garden, it was all very lovely and it was a hot summer's day and there was a group of us playing water polo in the swimming pool and it was, it was, it was, it was all good fun and um, the guy who 18th it was, was at one point standing on the edge of the pool um, and one of his um, distant family members um, snuck up behind him and went with his swimming shorts down in front of everybody. This guy just happened to see him out the corner of his eye and just at the last moment turned round, grabbed his fully clothed relative and pulled him into the swimming pool, which was hilarious. Not according to the family member who then in front of everybody stood up and swore and shouted at this guy because he had his phone in his pocket and he, all his emails and everything and it was... And I, I made a point of going up to this, this guy's mum afterwards and saying, just let you know, that was not his fault. That wasn't his fault. And I explained what happened and she said, oh, thanks for telling me that because I just naturally assumed, she said it's normally his fault, I just naturally assumed that he was, he was the one who was getting shouted at. He was the one who was being publicly humiliated on his own birthday. And she said, I just assumed it was his fault. And I said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't. We need to be standing up for people. Even in, in, in minor situations like that. It makes a difference. If that hadn't happened, then after the party, there might have been an almighty row between between mother and son, one arguing what their point of view and the other saying, Well, you were the one who got told off. You so see, we can we can make a difference. We can stand up for people. That's justice. Jesus told us to speak directly to the person when we have a dispute, when we have a um, when we upset somebody, when we feel upset, when we're aggrieved, when we disagree with somebody. Talk directly to the person. Now, this is often a verse that's used when talking about church discipline, but actually, we should apply this to any area of life where we where we have a grievance with somebody. Rather than talk about them, rather than go and rant at somebody else, a third party who's not involved, go straight to them. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his faults just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won him over. But if he'll not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would, a pagan or a tax collector. You see, it starts off, it starts off, if you've got a problem with somebody, talk to them. Because nine times out of ten, when, you're, when you talk face-to-face to some, with somebody, problems get resolved. Different points of view get understood and communicated properly. Road rage is interesting, isn't it? Because if we all drove convertibles, there'd be a lot less road rage because as soon as you put a screen between people, a barrier between people a, 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 a bit of protection between people, then suddenly suddenly people feel that they can, they can make gestures and shout things that they wouldn't normally shout and sometimes things can be misinterpreted if, you, if someone pulls out on you at a junction and, and they wave a hand and you say don't worry about it which you would say to somebody normally don't worry about it they see. And then, now, you say, I, I said, don't worry about it. They see. And you can understand, can't you, how, how these things escalate? How suddenly you get someone coming out of their car with a screwdriver in their hand. And we read about it in the headlines the next day. If we all drove convertibles, then don't worry about it would be heard. And they wouldn't worry about it. And people would drive away. But as soon as we put ourselves in a, in a box, we suddenly feel like we can, we've got a, a license to react differently. But we shouldn't. Because where two or three of us gather, Jesus is there with us. We are being watched. We are being observed. We have a heavenly host willing us to do the right thing in every conversation, in every, every situation we find ourselves in we have an opportunity. Right now, with coronavirus, as was prayed, I said I wouldn't talk about it, didn't I? Sorry. But as it was prayed earlier, we have an opportunity to show love, to show kindness, to show calm to our neighbours. And I'd urge you if, you, if you have vulnerable people living on your street or in your neighbourhood that you, that you know about, then go and put a note through their door saying, if there's anything I can do, here's my number. I'll be more than happy. Because people need that at the moment. People need to know that they're loved. People need to know they're being, being thought about. So we can turn this very negative situation into a massive positive. We can turn it into an opportunity to show Christian love. God is sovereign, is he not? Yeah. That's our, that's our starting point. We start from the love of God in everything that we do. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Truth and justice. I've got an example that I'm going to read here. You'll remember, possibly, a few weeks ago I um, spoke about David and Bathsheba and I I focused on, on David and on his... Um, repenting and the the relief that he expresses in the Psalms when he's had that burden of of guilt lifted and he, he, he knows he's still, he still knows he's done wrong but he knows that God is a God of love and a God of forgiveness and the relief and the release that he felt well there's something in the Fruitfulness on the Frontline book that we've been using for this series, um, written by Mark Green and he speaks about different ways that Nathan could have approached David. And I found this interesting because there are different ways that we can approach every situation when we're looking to to ensure that truth and justice are maintained. He says there might have been a lot of ways for Nathan to liberate David from his unconfessed sin. Nathan could have gone straight in and addressed him as a husband, saying, what would you do if someone seduced one of your wives? He could have addressed him in his role as commander-in-chief. If you sleep with your soldiers' wives, then pretty soon no one's going to want to fight for you. He could have appealed to family honour. Is this any way for a son of Jesse, of the Bethlehem Jesses, to behave? Or he might have tried to be more subtle. I was uh, having my quiet time today and I found myself reading the Ten Commandments. And once again I was struck by how liberating they are, particularly the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. Don't know why. Could have taken a subtle approach. In the end, Nathan appeals to David in his role as judge, asking him to rule in a case of theft, which, on the surface, has nothing to do with adultery, but is similar in its portrayal of the callous, willful, entirely unprovoked exploitation of a poor man by a rich one. Still, in this, it's important to see that when God sends Nathan to confront David, God isn't doing it to condemn David. He's doing it to liberate him from his guilt, to communicate the consequences of what he's done, and to restore their relationship. Indeed, when Nathan speaks up, it opens up a better future for David. The truth sets David free. So when we speak up for truth and justice, our goal is not to win the argument or beat the person, Our goal is the well-being of others to the glory of God. Indeed, the concept of justice in the Bible is not just about impartial legal judgments. It is about right living and fair dealings. Speaking and working for justice embraces a commitment to seek to support all that is righteous and to oppose all that is not for the sake of others to the glory of God. I thought I'd read that directly, because it's interesting, isn't it, that in, in the Bible, the truth and justice is not about black and white law. The Pharisees tried to catch Jesus out numerous times by saying, ah, but according to the law. But of course, it's, it's we start from a position of God's love. The law is not to be taken black and white. The law is to be taken as a something which is is almost a a mixture of spirit, a mixture of heart, a mixture of love and grace and care. Something that brings us to to justice rather than something that tells us what justice is. Sometimes even the application of law leaves us feeling that justice hasn't quite been done because we have to go the extra mile. We have to forgive the person as well as judging them. Ultimately, where do we place ourselves? How do we... How do we see ourselves in comparison to other people? I failed to put a bookmark in, so... Oh, I found it. Good. Um, In Philippians... Paul tells us how we should see ourselves in comparison to others. When we're we're sitting in the seat of judgment, when we're condemning other people for, for what they've said or what they've done, we need to remember these words. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. if we take that approach to other people, if we allow ourselves to, to, to consider ourselves below other people, regardless of who they are, regardless of, of what they are or what they've done, then we don't judge them. We accept them. We love them. We support them. So out on our front line this week, we have opportunities. Now, I've got to say it, Jesus said, love your neighbour. We find ourselves in a position at the moment where for the vulnerable in our society we show love by keeping away from them because there is a massive risk that we could carry an infection and give it to them when we're sitting having a cup of tea keeping them company showing love. That is a hard thing to accept as a Christian because our instinct is to go and see somebody, go and sit face to face with somebody. But in the coming weeks, we've got to listen to advice. Not take it as black and white, we've got to use common sense as well. We've got to pray into these things and we've got to act as we feel is right. But maybe this week, loving our neighbour... Does involve encouraging them to self isolate if we feel that's right. If we see that they're vulnerable, maybe this week we need to say, Look, don't take risks, don't go out to groups, don't don't go and get your own shopping, I'll do it for you. Or get a delivery. In the days and weeks to come we don't know what's going to happen. There's an awful lot of predictions, there's an awful lot of contradiction. But most people seem pretty confident that things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better. So throughout all this, I just want to finish by saying, keep safe. Don't take unnecessary risks. If we get to the time when we can't meet as a congregation, let's get in the habit of picking up the phone on a daily basis and looking out for each other. Let's let us communicate. Let's keep in touch. Email into the church office. Email me. You've got my, my, my number is in the directory. My email address is on the bulletin every week. Um, there are so many people here who have got such servant hearts and we need to be looking after each other in the coming weeks more than ever. We've got vulnerable people. We've got people who, who would love to be out doing things because that's their heart that actually... It's probably sensible if they don't at the moment. And I just want to finish by saying this. Don't feel guilty. Sometimes we can feel guilty about not going to church. Sometimes we can feel guilty about not going to a prayer meeting or a Bible study. But I just want to say at the moment, be released of that. If you're feeling ill, self-isolate. Spend seven days in prayer. Study a, a book of the Bible or a character. Spend time with God. Maybe this is an opportunity for all of us to, to take some time when, when the normal business of life is put to one side and we can just focus on God. Because he is unchanging. He is immune to any virus that, that is created in the world. He's, a pandemic doesn't affect him. He is with you regardless of who you are, of what you are, of what bugs you're carrying, what sin you've carried. He releases you from that. But only he's got that power. So I appreciate I'm not really ending on a message of truth and justice, but I am ending on a message of encouragement and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in these uncertain times we have a certain God. Lord, we, as, been, as has been said already this morning, we, we acknowledge that when the God that we've created out of materialism is turned to at the moment, we see empty shelves. When the God that we've made out of finance is turned to, we see markets crashing when the God that we've made out of, out of power and law is turned to, we see utter confusion. But when the God of Israel is turned to, we see the rock of ages. We see the one who's been unchanging from the birth of the world, who will be unchanging now and forevermore. And so, Father, we pray that this week you will you will reach out to each and every one of us. Father, we pray for those who aren't here with us today, whether they're self-isolating or or whether they're they're travelling back from a distant land. Whatever they're doing, Father, we pray for them. Lord, we pray for your protection and your provision. We pray for your healing hand and your guidance. We pray that you will you will use the politicians to make wise decisions. We pray, Father, that that there won't be panic, but there will be prudence. And that through prayerful petition, we will turn to you and acknowledge once again that despite how much we may feel that we're in control, It only takes one tiny little virus to unnerve all of us. But God, you've got this in control. We know that. You know where this is going to begin and where it's going to end. You know what's going to happen tomorrow and next month and next year. You know, Lord. So we place ourselves in your hands. We give thanks for your goodness and for your grace. And Father, we pray that every opportunity that comes our way in, 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 this, in this time, you will help us to grasp, to take advantage of it, to use it, to serve you, to further your kingdom. And Lord, we pray we pray that we will see a revival. We pray that we will see people turning to you, that we will see people turning to the church, recognising the work that the church does in in the society around us and and give thanks for that and and look to support and help and understand the motivation and through that come to know you as their saviour. Because we know, Lord, that you came to save life. You came to give salvation to all of mankind. And that's as true today as it ever has been. Father, be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.